Hey everyone, my name is OJ Tucker, host of the OJ Tucker Podcast, the only comedy tennis podcast that talks about our political and societal culture as a whole. My name is OJ Tucker, as the name would suggest. Happy Tuesday. Hopefully you guys enjoyed your weekend, spending time with your family, your friends, watching tennis along the way, watching the Mallorca Open and the Eastbourne uh, International Final along the way. There's a little bit of tennis news that we can get into today, but in terms of news outside of the tennis world, we can get into John McAfee uh, committing suicide uh, in his prison cell uh, just last Wednesday. We can get into Britney Spears' conservatorship. We can also get into Joe Biden releasing airstrikes in Syria, Syria and Iraq, as well as Mike Gravel passing away yesterday. I'm filming this on a Monday, so he passed away on ye- yesterday on a Sunday. And we can end with our weekly pick. But as I have alluded to earlier in the podcast, uh, we can obviously get into the Eastbourne International as well as the Mallorca Open Final. So if you guys didn't watch on Saturday, there were two matches playing concurrently, congruently. uh, Lorenzo Sonego versus Alex Deminar, as well as Sam Querrey versus Daniel Medvedev. Eastbourne Final for Lorenzo Sonego and Alex Deminar. Mallorca Open Final for Sam Querrey. Daniel Medvedev. We'll start off with Lorenzo Sonego and Alex Deminar because it was just more of an interesting match, and I think it's more of a match that uh, does have more of a litmus test as to uh, these sort of young stars and how they're playing uh, against one another as opposed to Medvedev and Query. Uh, just in terms of like the competitiveness, I thought this match was more competitive than the other one. So we'll obviously lead off with the Esport International Final. Um, so Alex Deminar won against Lorenzo Sonego. 4-6, 6-4, 7-6, 7-5 was the tiebreaker. And this is how Lorenzo Sonego lost to Alex Deminar. For me, like it was a little hard to like sort of dissect this topic because I didn't know if I should say Alex Deminar won against Lorenzo Sonego. I didn't know that would be the right title. But after watching the match and sort of seeing uh, certain points in the match that definitely led to Alex Deminar win. I sort of saw. I sort of thought to myself, okay, Lorenzo Sonego definitely did lose his match, and he had it right in his palms. He had more winners than uh, Alex Deminar at one point, even in the third set. Um, but yes, Lorenzo Sonego uh, did lose to Alex Deminar in the Eastbourne final, and part of the reason why he lost to Alex Deminar was just his inconsistency of the baseline, uh, his failure to re- return serve, especially uh, Alex Deminar's first serve, uh, failure to continue to add pace to his shots. And that was very thematic within this match, was just Lorenzo Sonego's inability to really continue and really thrive of what he succeeded and what he did the best in that first set. I mean, when you look back at that first set, it was mostly Sonego who was successful. You know, I mean, Sonego was very successful when it came to adding pace to his ground stroke and not only adding pace, but going to the net and really utilizing and attacking um, Alex Deminar's baseline play while being near the net and just playing the best he could possibly play uh, while, you know, slowly itching his way closer and closer uh, near the net. And I thought his volleys, uh, also the way that he would uh, sort of slice and and you know sort of 
shot like selected shots beforehand in terms of how he was able how he was able to build that point all of that really made all the difference in the world for sonego but when you saw how sonego was able to fare in the rest of the match uh it wasn't really what we saw in that first set i mean when alex demnor went up to love at that second set it changed the entire dynamic for that match and you know alex demnor came back from love 40 at 4-2 when sonego was serving to deuce and even though sonego won that game it was essentially a small sample size as to what we saw not only in that second set but just the, that entire match for demnor you know i mean from that beginning of that third set you know it, it even though it felt like sonego was getting to be more comfy it was only when he was trying to hold serve you know when when he was holding serve he was pretty good when it came to breaking serve it was pretty bad and it was like at a point where there were like a where there were like a, cons- a, a consecutive amount of first serves where sonego just couldn't get it over the net he just couldn't even like at least like get a nice like like itch on it you know it's it's one of those things where um sonego just had a very difficult time doing and that was part of the reason why he was just able to lose you know i mean when you still again you know when you look back at what you how sonego lost you know things that were great in that first set um demonar sort of knew his weaknesses and exploited it and exacerbated it to no return for sonego literally speaking because again he was really bad at that return serve really inconsistent at the baseline and above all, just did not add pace uh, at all to that first, uh, to his ground strokes. And Alex Deminar, as a result, succeeded and won. And congrats to Alex Deminar on the win. Um, that tiebreaker uh, could have been a lot better for Sonego. Uh, there were times where he just did not feel himself, feel like himself whatsoever. And it showed. And... Hopefully Sonego can play better for Wimbledon because, uh, you know, it's definitely a major. Uh, it, this definitely feels like a, a surface that he can thrive in. Uh, however, I'm not holding my breath for him. So uh, congrats to Alex Demeter on the Eastbourne final win. And uh, hopefully Lorenzo Sonego can rectify his mistakes so that these mistakes, these uh, screw-ups don't happen on a bigger stage where more people are watching you and... Where lights, where the lights shine the brightest, so yeah, it was an interesting match. I really enjoyed it. Um, pretty long, but overall, nice, enticing match to watch, and um, I was not bored whatsoever uh, while watching this match. Uh, I really wasn't. Uh, so yeah, I, I really enjoyed it. Um, hopefully, we're able to watch more competitive play uh, like this, and. Um, Hopefully, Sonego just continues to improve. You know, I know the grass season is very short. It's only like two weeks, three weeks of just grass of just this particular season. And then it obviously leads up to Wimbledon. Um, So, you know, obviously it's not as big as the clay season. You know, it's not like the Monte Carlo Rolex Masters, the Barcelona Open, the Madrid Open, the Italian Open, uh, the Lion Open. It's not like that. There are not that many uh atp 500 1000 tournaments that are within the grass season uh so you really have to be mindful and really be careful as to your predictions and this goes for any tennis related uh, analyst and commentator because uh the sample size is just so small and you really have no 
really understanding as to uh, how these players can do uh, when they're in the thick of it, when they're progressing that far in the tournament, when they're past the fourth round and into the quarters and semis of the of the of Wimbledon. So it's one of those instances where you just have to be mindful of it and uh, make sure your assessment of tennis is better uh, because it is a very small season to really get a better to really get a more accurate assessment of uh, compared to others uh, anyways let's get into the Mallorca Open final between Sam Query and Daniil Medvedev so you guys didn't watch uh, Neil Medvedev won against Sam Query 6-4-6-2 I was able to catch a little bit of the second set uh, just because I watched the first match and it's very hard for me to like watch two matches simultaneously and, and like jot down notes into like like you know say like who messed up here what was good with this person how did this person win over that person what did this person mess up that the other person took advantage of it's a little harder when you're watching two matches simultaneously so i had to as soon as that match ended i had to switch back to sam query versus daniel medvedev and uh it was pretty short um because while the third set was going on i was like okay uh let me just check on medvedev and query and then i was like it was like 4-2 or 5-2 and I'm like oh my god this match ended quick like this this match is ending quickly uh why was why wasn't I watching this match instead of uh Sonego versus Deminar but uh anyways Deminar versus Sonego was the more uh competitive match uh of the two but Medvedev won against Query 6-4-6-2 um overall it was a great match by Medvedev um here's the thing with Medvedev is that I think Medvedev knows he plays his best on clay. And generally speaking, and obviously Medvedev won against Query, that was a given. Um, I didn't know it would be in straight sets. I thought it would be a little bit more competitive a match. Um, but he won against Query pretty decidedly. And uh, it was just a highlight of what he's always been good with. You know, his ground strokes, his serves, the ability to sort of counterpunch his way out uh, into a victory and to really focus and pinpoint on the weaknesses of his opponent and more importantly uh, use it to sort of stress or not only just stress but more importantly just take advantage of the errors that his opponent makes uh, in this case query uh, that makes all the difference in the world uh, for Daniil Medvedev and um, you know I'm just really excited to see how he plays on grass because and this is the point I was trying to get into. Uh, for me, I view Medvedev, and I think Medvedev will attest to this. I think Medvedev plays his best on clay. And what I mean by that, and when I when I say that, I think he knows that he his strong suit is hard court and clay. So when you have an individual who knows his strong suits are hard court and clay, more so clay than hard court, I do think that tennis players have an understanding as to what they play the, their best on and those who often say they play their best on clay more often than not don't really show it on grass right i mean rafa nadal for the 13 roland garros titles that rafa nadal has he does only have two wimbledon titles 
And for the seven or eight Wimbledon titles that Novak Djokovic has, he only has two French Open titles. Now, I say two French Open titles like that's horrible. It's not, but it is a stark contrast between the two, right? Those who play their best on grass don't often play their best on clay and vice versa. So for Medvedev, he did reach the quarterfinals of the French Open. And while that may not be that great for a Tsitsipas level or a Sverev level, it does mean a lot for Medvedev because a lot of people did count him out. But at the same time, he does play his best on clay, generally speaking. Um, clay and hardcore, as I was saying. Uh, so, I don't know. It'll be interesting to see how he plays on grass because I don't know if he can get into the quarterfinals or the semifinals. I just don't. Um, actually, I think he'll make it to the quarterfinals, but I don't think he'll make it to the semis. I think he'll progress enough but I just don't think he can find that space where he can get to that semifinal or get to that final four. Um, I just think Djokovic is playing ex- ex- exceptionally well. Stefano Tsitsipas, the same thing. Zverev, I don't know if they're all in the same seats or in the same brackets. Um, but Zverev has also been playing very well. Uh, so it's going to be very tough for Medvedev to get into the semis. Uh, just judging how he was able to really play at his best uh, this past French Open. So I'm interested in seeing what's happening, to see what's going to happen. Uh, now, is Daniil Medvedev's win like a surefire way into thinking that he'll make it to the semis? No. I mean, as much as as much love and respect that I have for Sam Querrey, which I have a lot of love and respect for Sam Querrey, um there is a difference between a Sam Querrey versus the Greek. You know, there's a vast difference between Sam Querrey and even Taylor Fritz. You know, I mean, their their styles are not comparable to one another, and their success ha- is not comparable to one another at all in the slightest. So uh, while Daniil Medvedev's Majorca win is great, and I think it should be celebrated, uh, I don't think it, it should... Uh, drastically change his stock in terms of how he can play in Wimbledon because I just don't see uh, Medvedev really doing that well uh, compared to what he what we saw from him in terms of the previous U.S. Opens and uh, more more relatively speaking the last French Open that we saw him play I I, I just don't see him uh, really doing that well uh, compared to uh, compared to the ones that I've named before so. Yeah, that's just my overall thoughts on Daniil Medvedev, and uh, hopefully uh, we can see more uh, interesting play. You know, I mean, Mobledon's playing right now as I'm speaking, uh, and I'm interested to watching Andy Murray and Nicole Basilashvili at 11.45, so hopefully I'm able to finish uh, this podcast and edit this podcast in time so I can watch it, because uh, I just love Andy Murray so much. Uh, I know Novak is playing center court right now, but... I just had to get this out of the way. You know, I just wanted to uh, release this uh, and, you know, get you into the groove of things and into, into the swing of things because I do think that these small tournaments, uh, while uh, may not affect the may not affect Wimbledon drastically, I do think uh, it does give you a, a small sample size as to what we can expect from these players. And I just thought, you know, covering these smaller tournaments uh, can actually give you a more fair understanding as to the strong suits of all these players and you know how they can succeed and thrive as this tournament goes further and further 
So I might, I don't know if I'll do this next week, but I might release a podcast episode each and every day uh, during the second week of Wimbledon uh, as we get into the third, the fourth, the quarters, and the semis, uh, just because I think it's important to at least discuss each and every match uh, as they're happening. You know, this is one of the best tournaments, uh, if not the best Grand Slam of the ATP season, and I think it would be a crime if I didn't at least discuss it in detail. So don't hold your breath. I might discuss it. Uh, I might talk about tennis each and every day next week. Uh, so go check it out on YouTube, on the podcast feed. Um, but um, again, that's a slight maybe. Uh, who knows? But uh, that's um, uh, that's something that I'm willing to put myself through. Uh, not put myself through. That's a, that's a bad word. That's bad wording on my part. But uh, that's something that I'm willing to uh, do. You know, that's something that I'm willing to commit to. Anyway, so let's get into news outside of tennis. So last Wednesday, uh, John McAfee uh, died, I would say, at the age of 75 in his jail cell. And uh, people are saying that he was Epstein. Um, I don't know. Like, I know he's had some information on the CIA and on uh, those in power uh, that he said would, would incriminate them because apparently, like, his antivirus, McAfee antivirus, was running on those servers of the NSA and the CIA. Uh, so I wouldn't be shocked if he had a specific intel on, I like how I said that, uh, no pun intended, but uh, I'm sure he had specific intel on the NSA, NSA and the CIA, but I just don't think he was that powerful enough to warrant a death or to warrant an Epstein, you know. Um you know, again, when you look at Epstein, it's it's, it's a very different uh, scenario compared to John McAfee. Um, you know, Epstein was a person that, you know, some people say he was a part of the Mossad. You know, uh, some people, uh, again, he was beholden to the most powerful people uh, in the world. Uh, whereas John McAfee uh, died pretty broke and uh, not many people, especially within McAfee antivirus LLC, the company, uh, really wanted to associate themselves with McAfee, probably because they knew that uh, the antivirus that they had uh, or that they tried to sell was a scam. Uh, and anyways, if, if you're a person listening to this that runs antivirus, uh, just know that as long as you have Adblocker, you should be all set. I mean, as long as you run Adblocker, it doesn't make any sense to run antivirus software. It really doesn't. It's more of a scam. I mean, if, if you're going on... Uh, you know, Facebook or going on Twitter. It if you're going on these like rather big websites, it really doesn't make any sense uh, to run antivirus software. Uh, the only time you should like really run antivirus software is if you're like, I don't know, on some obscure website where, and I wouldn't even say run antivirus software. I would just say the only time you should really have at a blocker is when you're like when you know that what you're getting to is pretty nitty gritty. Uh, to to put it in uh, vanilla terms, but um, this sort of gets into my next discussion and more important topic with John McAfee is how will we remember John McAfee? And for me, I first heard of John McAfee in 2016 when he was running for president when I was in high school, and 
it sort of stinks to admit this to you, but in high school, I did have a libertarian phase. I loved Rand Paul in high school. I wanted to vote for Rand Paul in the 2016 election. He didn't make it to the primary, and I was 15, I mean, I was 17 when he was running in the primary. Uh, and, you know, my backup choice was John McAfee as well. Uh, I liked Rand Paul. I, I love John McAfee, and mainly because they ran on a non-interventionist foreign policy, where they were a little more, a little bit more cautious of our foreign occupations. And for me, this is something that I've, I'm proudly that I've stuck by, or that I've stood by since I was in high school. As long as you run on a non-interventionist foreign policy, I'll vote for you. And for John McAfee, you ran on a non-interventionist foreign policy. He was way more non-interventionist than that of Gary Johnson. So I was like, okay, I'll vote for you. And again, you know, it stinks to say that I had a libertarian face, but when you're on the YouTube algorithm and when you're watching so many Bill Maher videos, I used to like Bill Maher as well. It really stinks to say this out loud, but because uh, um, he is cringy. Um, but, you know, when you're on that YouTube algorithm uh, and when you get, you know, videos and videos piled up to you, it just makes you realize, it, it makes you go down a libertarian hole as well. So that's the main reason uh, why I was very supportive of John McAfee. But also his campaign ad was exceptionally amazing and well done. Go check it out. I will have a, a link in the, in, this, in the description box below uh, for you guys to check it out. I mean, it's, it was one of the better uh, campaign ads I've ever watched. And um, I, I really enjoyed his campaign, and that's how I'll remember him by. Um, you know, some people may remember him by McAfee antivirus and, you know, what he did in that department. Um, I wasn't, I didn't grow up in the 90s. I didn't grow up when McAfee antivirus was that prevalent. Um, but this, this is how I'll remember him by is for, by him running as a libertarian and him avoiding, uh, or him evading taxes, essentially, you know, him moving from country to country to evade taxes and, you know, he was a snake, oil, a snake oil salesman who understood that McAfee antivirus was, you know, essentially a scam. And he even admitted it in his, like, dump McAfee antivirus commercial that he did on his YouTube channel. Um, you know, if, any, if anything, he accomplished the American dream. And, you know, he lived as a true American. He evaded taxes and he sold very scam-like products and he made a lot of money out of it so i mean props to john mcafee for it you know it's one thing for like a mark zuckerberg to do it or for like a jeff bezos to to do it because they're plaguing american society i, I think they're what i mean yeah i mean if anything mark zuckerberg and jeff bezos are making billionaires corny i would say that i, I have nothing against billionaires it's a product of our system. If anything, we should blame the system for it. Uh, but uh, yeah, if anything, I blame Zuckerberg and Jeff Bezos for making the idea of amassing a fortune corny. But for John McAfee, John McAfee made it okay to be like cool about it. You know, I mean, when you look at John McAfee, like amassing his fortune, like at least he was cool with it. Like at least he played the part of acting like like a technocrat, even though... He was millions in debt and, you know, evaded taxes whenever he could. At least he was cool about it and very sort of like idyllic about it, you know. And, and that's something that I really valued about uh, John McAfee is that even though, you know, he accomplished so much in his short life, I mean, he, was, he died 75, 
he was very in tune with like internet culture and you know there were times on twitter where he would be you know sort of you know going into like the conspiracy rabbit hole and you know getting people invested in him and uh i think that was amazing uh in terms of john mcafee so i think that's how i'll remember him by as like a libertarian candidate that really stood by his morals and principles and uh acted on them uh by evading taxes uh whenever he could uh so that's that's how i'll remember him by i know some people may remember him by by uh smaller uh more nefarious things that he probably did um but for me that's how i'll choose to remember him and uh i think whether he got epstein or not um that question will forever be there i mean he he posted q uh, on his instagram page so um in reference to QAnon, uh so it's i don't know it's it's up it's up to you as to whether or not how you choose to value him and after his death but that's how i remember him by as a person that you know stuck by stood by his morals through and through and uh had a pretty interesting presidential run as a result of it so you have a lot of shoes to fill uh dave smith from part of the problem legion's gangs anyways yeah <laughs> uh yeah i think i think that's um how much i'll discuss on uh john mcafee all right let's get into mike gravel um if you guys didn't see yesterday, uh, Mike Gravel passed away. Very, very sad. Uh, Mike Gravel was a person that uh, spoke up on the Pentagon Papers. Uh, he was one of the few anti-war Democrats on the 2008 debate stage. Um, you know, he very, he basically looked Obama and Hillary Clinton in the eye and said, these people scare me uh, in the 2008 debates. Um, he was a person that stood by, you know, talking about John McAfee and how he stood by his morals. This person... Uh, also stood by his morals and um it stings you know i mean you know a lot of anti-establishment figureheads are passing away uh they just need to kill beto and everything would offset it <laughs> you know uh if they just kill like beto o'rourke it'll be like okay that makes sense uh no i'm, I'm just kidding just playing around with you guys um you know it obviously stings you know the man was a person that was very vigilant uh, in terms of being honest about the Vietnam War, being honest with the Iraq War, the Afghanistan War, and our foreign occupations that made no sense um, in order to advance the profits of private defense contract firms. And, um, you know, it, it just stings to see uh, a person like that pass away. Obviously, he passed away at the age of 91. Uh, so, you know, it's not like Kobe Bryant, but it still stings whenever you see a person pass away. Uh, especially a person that was very honest and vocal about his beliefs and stood by him. And, uh, you know, to see what the Washington Post, owned by Jeff Bezos, and the New York Times slander Mike Gravel, it was just absolutely sickening. Um, you know, when you see Washington Post, uh, they essentially said, in terms of their headline uh, for my, uh, Mike Gravel passing away, they said, Mike Gravel, gadfly senator from Alaska, with flair for the theatrical dies at 91 which i think was done in poor taste i i don't think they should have said that especially a, a person that uh has a lot more balls than say any other establishment democrat out there way more than pete Buttigieg, way more than uh, beto o'rourke way more than uh 
Biden. I mean, when Biden passes away, do you think the Washington Post will say flair for the theatrical? Even though Joe Biden just sent airstrikes to Syria and Iraq. Like, come on now. Like, come on now. Uh, and then New York Times uh, said, Mike Gravel, unconventional two-term Alaska senator, dies in 91. Like, what is up with these editorialized headlines? I mean, I understand that they want to get people interested to, like, click on the articles, and I'm sure most of it is out of hate. Uh, but Mike Gravel has way more uh, consistency with his views on the world, or had uh, way more consistency on his views on the world compared to that of Washington Post or that of the New York Times. So, you know, it stinks. You know, it's it's something that, um, it's not something that I, I've, uh, I don't know. It's hard to like really put into words, you know, how much we need an anti-war coalition between all political parties. You know, I mean, I remember back in, Back in the early 2000s, you know, mid-2000s, I would hear Republicans, you know, say they were against the war in Iraq and Afghanistan. Republicans, you know, I mean, there were, you know, the individuals that were very much inspired by Ross Perot. They were in inspired by the populist right in terms of uh, a more isolationist approach. I mean, there were certain libertarians that came out that were more for non-interventionism. And there are, there is a difference between uh, non-interventionism and isolationism. Uh, and there were also anti-war Democrats as well um, that gravitated towards the Mike Ravels, towards the Dennis Kucinich's, towards the Bernie Sanders. And um, I think we need we need an anti-war coalition on all fronts and accords. I think it's time we bring it back. You know, I think it's time that we uh, that we that we at least uh, try our best to uh, go after uh, these wars that we we that we have been in for the past. 20 or so years as of this moment in time so yeah it, it just stinks you know hopefully hopefully um if anything hopefully uh microville passing away um can lead to something better uh because as we'll get into later in this podcast um you know the pro-war party uh, is still continuing even with a Democrat in office, and um, I'm not saying Democrats are different than Republicans, but I'm just saying that Mike Gravel and Joe Biden are a part of the same party or were a part of the same party. Uh, it sucks to say was or were in the past tense uh, with a person with a hero uh, like Mike Gravel, um, but um, yeah, you know, hopefully. Hopefully we can get that, uh, hopefully we can find ways to uh, be more vocal and adamant about our opposition to these foreign occupations, because uh, it really does suck to still be a part of it after all these years, after all this time, uh, still fighting the same old wars, uh, finding the same old excuses of restoring democracy, even though Afghanistan, as soon as we pull out as a failed government, which just shows... Uh, how U.S. involvement was horrible and extremely disgusting to see. Um, so yeah, you know, I don't, I don't know, I don't know what the establishment does in in Afghanistan. You know, it's going to be interesting to watch. You know, thankfully I'm not in a position of power to dictate to dictate that. But uh, yeah, I mean, my 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 opinion is, we marched right in. Let's march right out. You know, that that's what I believe. That's what I think. And um, 
hopefully hopefully the ideas of Microville live on because God knows we need we need more people that are more anti-war or just about as anti-war as Microville because AOC uh Ilian Omar uh the squad I don't think they're the voices for non-interventionism I just don't uh, and I think the last person you could say was non-interventionist in terms of the left would probably be like Bernie Sanders even though like he was for certain things that I, I, I just don't really see the need for intervention and obviously Dennis Kucinich uh, but other than that I, I just don't see uh, a, a Democrat right now that is strictly an, uh, anti-war uh, besides those two and uh, probably Barbara Lee, Barbara Lee. Uh, but anyways I think those are like the only two or three that's like vehemently anti-war uh, and even then there are some sketchy views that they that they, all three of them have more so Barbara Lee and uh, Bernie Sanders in terms of war uh, that I just don't really understand but uh, we don't have enough time to talk about that uh, let's let's talk about something outside of politics uh, the US has bombed Syria and Iraq uh, <laughs> anyways, uh, on Sunday, yesterday, the U.S., uh, Joe Biden in particular, decided without congressional approval to send airstrikes to Iraq and Syria, and Joe Biden's justification for this was that there were Iran-backed militias, which is a crock of crap, I would say. It's uh, pretty... Uh, I don't really buy it. I, I truly don't. I don't know where he is coming from uh, in this scenario. It's, I mean, frankly, it's horrible. You know, I mean, what is there to say about this? Sending airstrikes, bombing the crap out of Syria and Iraq is just horrible. It's disgusting. Uh, it, Biden is essentially just continuing what the past three presidents are doing and it's acting like no, no differently, no, no more or less than a neoliberal. He's, he's acting like a neoliberal with neoconservative tendencies, and this is one of those tendencies where he is having a bloated military budget, but is also being pretty interventionist with his foreign affairs and foreign escapades. So this is horrible. This is disgusting. Uh, Biden is obviously horrible on a lot of issues, a lot of issues, but the, the worst issue he has is on foreign policy, and you know he's the architect of the, of the Iraq war. You know, he was the person that pushed for the Iraq war and was essentially an establishment Democrat for 30, 40 years while in office. So when I see liberals getting mad at him, you know, first off, it's really weird how liberals pick and choose what they get mad at, right? Like two, three years ago when Donald Trump was putting kids in cages, even though Barack Obama was also the person that put kids in cages, they had a hissy fit over it. I mean, they were like extremely mad about it. And now, they're also not really mad. They're, they're also not as mad as Biden sending airstrikes to Syria and Iraq as opposed to Trump putting kids in cages, which, which makes no sense whatsoever. In fact, I saw a lot of comments, uh, you know, sort of defending Biden, saying, oh, who, who's, who has dementia now, Republicans? I'm like, no, 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 no. That's not how you that's not how you go about this information. You don't say you don't view an airstrike and say, oh, now who has dementia now? No, that's not how you go about things. 
right? Like this person sent airstrikes and destroyed innocent civilians as a result of it. Like that's not the way you defend Biden, like at all. So it, it's just one of those things where like I, it's hard for me to ever view liberals as people that are like trying to like be consistent with their issues because they're not. I mean, they're just as horrible, if not as horrible as conservatives. You know, I mean, conservatives, when the conservatives had a pulse on the culture uh, in the early to mid 2000s, it was horrible. I mean, it was it was extremely horrible. The right fumbled the bag when it came to controlling the culture because they were in favor of the two wars. They had more of a uh, of a more religious approach to art and to censoring art. And uh, it was just a horrible time to really sort of uh, be honest with how you felt, because if you were anti-war, you were viewed as as a as a person that sided with the terrorist. You know, I mean, that's how they went about. You know, if if you were against the wars, the foreign occupations, you were viewed as a terrorist, you know, so it or viewed siding with a terrorist and against the soldiers. So it's, I don't know, I see a lot of similarities between conservatives and liberals when it comes to culture war topics and when it comes to justifying intervention through the guise of culture war. And I just think that's horrible and I think that needs to change. And above all, I think it's horrible that Joe Biden did this to Syria and Iraq. Obviously, it's there's a reason why he attacked Syria. It's because for some reason they want to have regime change in Syria. They want to get Bashar al-Assad out of the equation because uh, he does not fit in with the uh, the Israel, Saudi Arabia, U.S. affiliation. Um, he, he also, Bashar al-Assad is also in favor of Hezbollah. Uh, he didn't really uh, help out the United States when they went to war with Iraq in 2003. So those are sort of some of the, some of the reasons why um, they are they are out going after uh, Syria is because of just how much they don't have in common uh, and how much they don't agree with one another. Uh, also. Uh, I'm pretty sure Bashar, Bashar al-Assad has been like helping out Palestine and uh, is not in favor of Israeli occupation of the Golan Heights, which, again, I'm not that understanding of. I'm not that aware of it, of what's happening in Syria. I, I'm not that. I wish I had more of an inclination. I, I wish I had more of an understanding as to what was happening, in, as, as to what's happening in Syria. Uh, but I'm, I'm just going off that information. He's not really affiliated with with the overall uh, uh, prerogative or with the overall um, sort of idea of what U.S., Israel, and Saudi Arabia are doing together as these three countries are continuing uh, their empire. So, yeah, I mean, it just thinks, you know, because, you know, it's just Biden being... Biden having a neocon foreign policy and neolib economic policy, and it just sucks. It just stinks. You know, it's you know obviously he's doing things in Iraq because he was okay with the Iraq War, and not only okay with the Iraq War, but also uh, was in favor uh, of continuing intervention even when we pulled out of Iraq, Iraq in twenty eleven. You know, so I mean. I, I mean, it's weird when people are shocked by it, 
because even though there were certain liberals that were defending it, there were certain liberals that were also shocked by it. And um, you get you get what you you voted for. You, you know, I mean, you got an establishment Democrat who is essentially um, is doing the bidding of defense contractors and uh, uh, those who have power within the government, more power than, say, Joe Biden. Uh, so, I mean, you get what you pay for. You know, it's it's one of those things. So, I mean, you get what you voted for. Better way of saying it. Um, so, yeah, overall, it stinks. You know, I mean, what else can you really uh, talk about when it comes to the U.S. bombing Syria and Iraq? Uh, I wish I wish the DNC didn't screw over Bernie and Tulsi. Those are like my two best picks uh, to vote for in 2020. Uh, I... I wish I could vote for uh, Bernie in the Massachusetts primary, but I, I just wasn't in town that time. So, and plus, I, I really don't value voting that much. I, I just don't. I don't think any change will be happening anytime soon. Uh, it's interest. It's weird when I know it's fun to like theorize like how we can change the world, but you you can't change our current system. Our current system is way too big for any rampant change whatsoever. So, anyways. Let's get into news within the uh, societal culture, outside of politics. So, uh, Britney Spears has a conservatorship. Um, last Wednesday, she gave a testimony, her testimony as to what, she, how she's been doing, how she's been treated, um, and um, it basically against her father. Her father has her under a conservatorship, and she's been uh, essentially not only been taking lithium for the past five or so years, ever since her conservatorship started, but she also has been uh, put under uh, precarious situations. I mean, um, Britney Spears has essentially, I mean, can't essentially get pregnant because uh, she has an IUD uh, in her. So uh, it's, and she talked about it in her testimony as well and how, uh, sort of within the confines she feels uh, and and just how restricted she feels as well um, because of this conservatorship and um, it's effed up you know it's it's messed up uh, free Britney um, you know it, it really stinks to see her go through this um, you know I think there's a lot of things that we don't really know about child stars um, that we should know and this is just one of those examples of, you know, a successful child star who has and who still currently has a pretty bad uh, background, pretty bad past, pretty bad uh, uh, predicament that she's currently going through. And uh, I think we're going to see a lot more child stars uh, giving their opinions and, and having their story being told. And uh, I think Britney Spears was correct with her uh uh, with her remarks that she gave uh, during her testimony and um, hopefully she just gets better you know just as not only uh, in this situation but hopefully um, you know she can be a, per a better person you know uh, uh, in terms of uh, getting through this you know hopefully she can get past through this and um, get past this horrible horrible thing that she's going through um, you know, I mean, I remember, you know, listening to certain songs. I, I listened to this uh, song by Britney Spears. Some YouTube channel had like a remix of like Deaf Heaven and uh, Britney Spears together. It was like awesome. It was amazing. Go check it out. 
uh, it was like Deaf Heaven and and uh, Britney Spears is Toxic. Great, great song. I love. I, lo- it's a. Gr- I mean, it's interesting. It's great. Uh, Britney Spears vocals on like new metal, on a new metal instrumental, which I thought that was like amazing to hear. Um, you know, I mean, she's she's a a person uh that you know has had a pretty bad past as well i mean when you look back at britney spears in 2007 it really puts everything into perspective with what has come out in the past month or so in the past year or so i mean because this conservatorship has been around since like the past year you know i mean mean, there has been news and speculation about it uh regarding britney spears in the past year or so uh so it's it's not like this is anything new uh it's just now it's been fully within the mainstream media's grasp and now more and more people are talking about it which is a good thing uh so yeah it, hopefully she uh she can get 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 through this you know hopefully she can um get past this obstacle in her life and um you know make great music again you know make good bubblegum pop music and uh just keep on keeping on you know All right, let's get into my weekly pick. All right, so each and every Tuesday, I recommend a piece of art, usually a film, a book, an album that I really enjoyed, that I thought you guys would enjoy as well. And this week, as I alluded to in terms of last week's weekly pick, I recommend a song from this album. I'm going to recommend the album because I really enjoyed this album. It's called Call Me If You Get Lost by Tyler the Creator. Um, I truly love this album. Uh, mainly because, it, and I, I'm not going to be the first one, I know I'm not the first one to say this, and I definitely won't be the last one to say, to say this, but it was essentially an old, com- it was essentially a combination of old Tyler the Creator mixed in with a more mature, more refined sound that we've heard from Igor as well. If anything, it sounds like Wolf, his uh, th- second studio album, I think, third studio album, I think second, I think Bastard is considered a mixtape. Um second studio album with more of a more refined uh more eloquent feel that he got from igor and a very similar story that he got from igor um and you know there are certain tracks on this album that were really reminded me from of, about wolf i mean you know will uh you know i mean when you hear lemonhood lemonhead it sounds a lot like trash wing and when you hear uh domo genesis on uh, manifesto that sounds a lot like rusty like a lot like his his part in that song sounds a lot like his part on Rusty. And for me, like that's how I got into Tyler, the creator was through his performance on David Letterman. I just really loved uh, that performance. And I thought that was like very like, I don't know, like when I listened to that song, like I was probably in like the right mood because like I was like 18 years old, 17, 18 years old. I'm like, yeah, like screw this, screw that. You know, like there was a little there was a lot of like rebellion. Uh, within Tyler the Creator's music early on uh, in his career, especially even now, I would say, um, you know, a lot of people are saying that this sounds like Gravediggers, you know, especially with DJ drama on it. Uh, I haven't really listened to Gravediggers. I didn't gr- really grow up on like '80s or '90s uh, rap, uh, hip hop. I didn't grow up on that. I grew up mostly on post post punk. Um, you know, that's where I sort of got into it. 2000s New York rock is where I, I really enjoy. That that's what I really enjoy. Um, you know, and it's a it's a great album. I really enjoy this album. Uh, you know, the guest vocals are amazing. I mean, he really brought the A game of Lil Uzi, Lil Wayne, especially. I mean, his his part uh, was amazing. NBA Young Boy, Ty Dollar. I mean, What's Your Name was a great song. Uh, NBA Young Boy, 
amazing. Uh, Ty Dolla was just able to harmonize all all those parts within that song that no other person could do. Um, you know, I mean, favorite tracks uh, in terms of this album are Juggernaut, Manifesto, Lumberjack. Um, I really enjoyed this album. Uh, there were certain songs uh, in the last back end that I didn't really enjoy. Uh, I wouldn't say enjoy, but I thought they went along. They went on for a little too long. Uh, I think Wilshire could have been a little bit better if it was like six or seven minutes long. Uh, it like this album sort of reminded me of Interpol's Antics, which I love. Interpol. Interpol is like my favorite rock band of all time. Uh, and Antics is a great album, you know. But um, there were certain songs on that back end where I just didn't really like enjoy as much as say like Evil or Slow Hands. You know, like Length of Love is like one of those songs where I just like I just couldn't really get into. Um, but I sort of view this in the same realm, and I and I think that should be a compliment because both of those albums are really good. Uh, they're really great albums, and um, I'm excited to see where Tyler the Creator goes next. I mean, one of the things that I really love about Tyler the Creator is that even though you think that this is his best project, whether you like uh, whether because I know a lot of people are really enjoying this album. And some people were saying it's his best project. Uh, I, I think Flower Boy and Igor are a little bit more better uh, than this project. Um, but a lot of people were saying this is his best product, project. And one of the things that I really love about Tyler is that even when you think this is his best project, you just know he's going to release something that's even better than this project. Two years down the road, three years down the road, whenever he releases the next project, you just know that it's going to be that much better. Uh, and who knows? It could be something within the rap uh within you know within call me if you get lost wolf or it could be something even more experimental than igor and he could really harness his singing powers uh or his singing uh more so than his last album or more so than igor you know so it's going to be very interesting to see where tyler the creator goes next from here i'm really getting a lot of like bo burnham's inside vibes uh in terms of how like this person can go further in terms of releasing a critical project or a pretty artsy project that uh, is getting pretty good critical acclaim, but you know that this person can go even that much better and even that much more in an experimental direction. So, so yeah, I really enjoyed this album. In terms of my favorite albums of this year, I would say it's definitely in like top five. I mean, really, really, we really haven't heard that many great albums this year. Um, you know, I would say Lana Del Rey's. Uh, Chemtrails, Over the Country Club, uh, Mogwise, As the Love Continues, Ice Ages, Seek Shelter. As I've said before, I'm into post-punk. Uh, Ice Ages, Seek Shelter is still my number one album of the year. Uh, but overall, I really enjoyed this album, and I highly suggest you uh, listen to it. Call Me If You Get Lost top by Tyler, the creator. Uh, go listen to it. Uh, I'm sure you will enjoy it if you enjoy um, the more sort of uh, rapidy rap, sort of older... Tyler the Creator albums that we've been accustomed to and that we've grown grown to love and first found love with him. Um, so, yeah, go listen to it. Really enjoy it. And um, that will be my weekly pick for today. Guys, thank you so much for watching. Thank you so much for tuning in. Make sure you click like, subscribe, and click the bell icon for notifications down below if you're watching on the YouTube channel. Uh, if you don't know how to get to my YouTube channel, go to Ajay Tucker Podcast. It's the first link. Uh, make sure you click on that and then click on like, subscribe, click the bell icon. Make sure you rate, review, and uh, on, on iTunes uh, if you're listening to iTunes. 
because uh, that definitely helps in terms of getting this upwards. Um, also, if you're uh, on WhatsApp, make sure you put this on your WhatsApp group thread and whatnot uh, to get more and more people invested and interested in the product. Uh, go follow me on uh, my my socials, Instagram, Twitter. Uh, more, uh, so I'm more out there on Twitter than Instagram, but uh, make sure you follow me on Instagram and Twitter. And with that comes another episode of the Edge Tucker Podcast. Guys, thank you so much for listening. Thank you so much for tuning in, and I'll see you guys on Thursday. We'll talk more about Wimbledon first round, probably the second round as well. All right, guys. Peace. See y'all.